This is Gross Anatomy, where pop culture meets health culture. Let's get to it. Hey. Hi. How are you, Jason? How are you, Ali? Thank you for having me. Good. Gross Anatomy. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to give a quick intro before we jump into catching up. So today we have on Dr. Arash Niyari. I hope I'm Niyari, right? Is that correct? I'm not even sure how it's pronounced anymore in the U.S. Niyari? Okay. Niyari is good. That's okay. awesome. Okay, Niyari. And Dr. Niyari is an attending cardiologist at Cedars-Sinai Smith Heart Institute. Dr. Niyari has a lengthy history of clinical research with over 30 peer-reviewed publications and 50 presentations at national conferences, including the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology national meetings. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. I've been meaning to do this now for a year. So I know this is a year, uh, exactly. And, and before we even started recording, you just said you hate being called doctor. Well, I have I to give like the it. bio, right. I have to give the bio with your title, but as we yeah. speak, I will f- refer to you as Arash. But I want to put him on the spot. It. I want to put you on the spot. Why do you hate being called doctor? Well, when I was at Vanderbilt, I had the smartest lab mentor ever, the coolest guy. You know, it's kind of like you. And the guy had uh, you know, over $100 million of lab funding, of research funding under him, like pioneer. I worked with him for four years. And he went by his first name. And he insisted on it. Everybody in the lab, regardless of pedigree or seniority, followed suit. There was an atmosphere of people being able to speak up and collaborate with the hierarchy somewhat broken down with it, I took that with me. So then at UCLA, I saw the people who did that. I saw a difference with my patients. I go like that. So it it really, I think, helps put everybody on a more even conversation plane. Wait a minute. So, so with your patients, you tell them to call you Arash, not you deliberately correct them. What do you, what do you do? I I never say I'm Doctor Nairi. I say hi, I'm Arash Nairi, and then I tell them about myself. And I mean, like they know they know I'm a doctor, right? They know I'm a doctor. So if again, it doesn't matter if they're saying Doctor Nairi or Arash, then they say something insulting or nice. What they're saying is what they're saying. So. I don't repeatedly correct them, but if after I introduce myself like that, if they call me a rush, I'm all for it, man. Got it. A funny story is when I, I did my fellowship and I had a couple of mentors and for and and all the other surgeons above me, I called Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so. Yeah. But when I turned 40 as a birthday present to myself, I decided I'm just calling amazing. all my superiors, everybody. I'm just switching and calling them by their first name. And I and I deliberately made that decision because it was weird. Like I had these colleague friends who were doctors, but at 40, I said, you know what? I'm calling everybody. And that was last year. I turned 40 last year, by the way, I wish. But uh, I decided to call <laughs> them by their first name. What about That's you, well Jason? Deserved, man. Yes, it is well-deserved. But what about just non-doctors, Jason? Are we allowed to call you Jason? <laughs> Or well, do you, you want know, us to call you Dr. Cohen? Well, you know me as Jason because you're my kid's friend. So in the house, uh, you know, and, and when you're talking together, when we're cooking together, I want to be Jason. 
I, I don't know. It's funny, you know, Lauren, who was our former co-host, still to this day, who I consider a friend, still cannot call me Jason. And for the longest time, I would keep saying, stop calling me Dr. Cohen. Stop calling me. And she always called me. So I kind of got the mindset of on the podcast, I'm Dr. Cohen. So it was this it was this weird thing, even though I kept saying to Lauren. And even now when I talk to her, she still calls me Dr. Cohen. I'm like, Lauren, will you call me Jason already? So I don't know. I, I, I must say, though, some patients... It does bug me a little, Arash, when they just automatically yeah. call me Jason. And I don't know if that bothers if, you. If they don't know you, if it's the first time they're seeing you, if they're being disrespectful, like that's the, at that point, it's part of a connotation of them dismissing your expertise, right? right? But if you have a good relationship with them, if you know them, yeah. if you know there's mutual respect, yeah, man. Yeah, it's different. Say you're like when a brand new patient who doesn't know you just automatically calls you Arash, right? Or no? They don't. They don't. They don't. <laughs> it's only after I get to know them. Then again, it's the same thing with you, right? You, yeah. you open the relationship a little bit. That's important to note the context, I think, for people. Yeah. If you run into either of them out in the world, the context is important. If you're being rude, we're adding doctor in front. A hundred percent. And if you're being polite, maybe we can use your first name. I think it's an even weirder thing with someone who's a rabbi. Like, would you ever call a rabbi or a priest by their first name? I oh, think it's an even weirder thing. That's a tough one. Yeah, yeah, I call our rabbi patients, and we have one patient with a father. I always call him rabbi or father. Yeah. yeah. Because they've worked similar to a doctor. It's like you've earned that. You've yeah, put in a lot whole, of work to earn that title. <laughs> well, it's true. For you guys, it's also this level of, like, you busted it to get that title. So did they, in a sense. Yeah. Okay, well, let's shift back to our topics. Uh, today, we were going to chat about GLP and GIP. I'm guessing this is agnostic, such as Wagovi, Ozempic, and Munjaro. However, I realized while writing this that I don't know what GLP or GIP agnostics are. So can we start with one of yeah. you telling me? So it's agonist. Agonist, agonist is something that although wait, 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 I'm cutting you off. We were talking since we were talking about rabbis and and yeah. priests, then it's agnostics, but that's that's totally a hundred percent. Right, exactly. So I when I was at UCLA, I thought it would be a funny little survey. So I surveyed a group of my friends who are physicians. So they're talking about different subspecialties of medicine of surgery, psychiatry, people who are in this PhD program with me. And I don't, like I never published it, it was just a fun survey. Only 10% of people knew about these medications. These are guys who are MDs in the residency fellowship or beyond, actually knew how these medications work. And one of the reasons is it they're fairly new. And even for me, and I'm much junior to the respectable Jason Cohen, this was not an emphasis in our medical training in med school. So GLP stands for glucagon-like peptide. GIP stands for gastric uh, inhibitory polypeptide. So they're both what we call incretins. They're a class of hormones, Allie, that are released naturally in our body in response to eating. So your body is filled with negative feedback pathways to try to keep us in homeostasis. So if you're eating, you want to send a cue back. So maybe your pancreas releases insulin and you're able to handle all the blood sugar you're about to receive. 
and maybe you stop eating. And that's what the incretins do. So GLP-1 agonists, historically, the first one was liraglutide or Saxenda and exenatide. Those things we rarely see anymore. Now the most common one by a mile is semaglutide, which comes in three different formulations, a pill called ribelsis, which is rarely used, and two injectables of the same exact medication called Wigovi and Ozempic. That class of medications is similar to the GIP agonist. So terzepatide or Manjaro is the only one of this class that's both a GLP and a GIP agonist. But again, the mechanism of action, the overview is really similar. They mimic the effects of our own body's incretin hormones that are a response to us eating. So here's what the, what the hormones do in our body. If you and I right now and Jason go out and get a fatty meal, we go get a cheeseburger, a steak, whatever. These hormones are released by our own stomach and they go to our pancreas and they tell our pancreas, release insulin. What the insulin is then supposed to do is shift all the blood sugar that's about to go up into our fat, into our muscle to keep our blood sugar steady. So when these medications initially came out, the initial concern was they may help with diabetes, but they may actually raise weight as insulin does. Mm -hmm. One of the concerns with insulin has always been, and you take insulin to treat your diabetes, your weight goes up because you're shifting sugar to fat and muscle. But these medications, paradoxically, we learned in the early 2010s, actually lower weight. So then you find out, well, the incretins have other effects outside the pancreas. In the stomach, they delay gastric emptying. They slow down how fast your stomach empties the food. So as you can imagine, if the food sits in your stomach, you're going to feel fuller. You may eat less. Then we found out in about 2014, well, we also have expression of the receptors to these hormones in our hypothalamus, a place in our brain which has a central role in regulating our appetite. Mm. So then we find out these medications, by mimicking the action of our own body's hormones, not only release more insulin, which leads to better blood sugar control for diabetics, but we lead to slower gastric emptying, earlier satiety, less sensation of hunger, and from that, this whole new wave of medications and science for weight loss and cardiovascular protection really took off. So Got GLP, it. GIP, incretins, they mimic hormones that our own bodies produce to keep our balance as we eat the meals we do. And we've hijacked them for our own benefit. That makes sense. Thank you for breaking that down. We got the 101 version for the non-medical degree people no, listening. And for the medical people who are clueless. Oh, good. I'm glad it wasn't just for me. So that all sounds really positive. Are there any things we should be worried about? If I hear that, I think, oh, well, if it just makes me feel full longer and it just slows down the breakdown of food, why wouldn't I do that if I want to be my skinniest, most beautiful or most amazing feeling self? Because that seems to be what's trending right now is if someone wants to be thin or they want to feel really good, whether they need to take these drugs or not, that they want to. It's a great question. The short answer is they're really going to push for it. Who's they? So the, the big pharma. So Norva Discus and Eli Lilly are in an arms race right now. It's akin to Coke and Pepsi, but maybe with even bigger stakes in the long run. So 
2016, they published the first two studies in the same year that showed cardiovascular benefits with these medications in diabetics and coronary disease. So with loraglutide and Saxenda, Leader was published, which showed in people with coronary disease and diabetes, these medications reduce heart attack risk. And the same year, Norbodiscus with their drug semaglutide showed the same exact finding. That so, these medicines have less heart attacks. Yeah, diabetics with coronary disease on these medications have less heart attacks. And it was the first time in the history of diabetes we had a medication that didn't just treat diabetes and blood sugar that actually reduced heart attack risk. So it became a huge thing in our field, right? And was it a significant, every patient taking it or most of the patients taking it or a good enough amount of the patients? The relative risk reduction was about, I think, 20%. So again, it's significant. Is it a complete risk reduction? No, but nothing in cardiology is. It's all partial benefit. So then the following trial happened a few years later, which kind of killed liraglutide. So I promise you, Sixenda. I promise you don't see much Sixenda. Nobody sees They did a head-to-head. And they showed that the weight loss with Ozempic, semaglutide, at 72 weeks was 15%. But with liraglutide, was 6 So there's a 9% absolute risk reference for weight loss with semaglutide and liraglutide. From then on until last year, Norvodiscus had a kind of a monopoly on these medications for diabetes, for weight control. And they got to market it as saying, well, in your diabetics with coronary disease, it's not just a cosmetic benefit. We're reducing heart attack and stroke risk. Then a year later, last year, I should say, last July, Eli Lilly finally published their data for their drug, terzepatide, showing the weight loss with their drug is more profound which than is, the weight which loss is with semaglutide. Manjaro. This is right? Manjaro. Manjaro. Uh, so right. on average with semaglutide, whether you take the Wigovi or the Ozempic, it's the same thing, just in different packaging and it goes to different doses. You lose about 15% of your weight at 72 weeks. And the 72-week benchmark was just what the studies initially picked, and now all of them have to follow it for comparison purposes. Eli Lilly's drug at the higher doses makes you lose 20% of your weight. So you get a 5% additional weight loss. And what you see alongside that, which is kind of obvious, but kind of fascinating is, well, if you have high cholesterol and you lose a lot of weight, what do you think happens to your cholesterol? It goes down. If you have high blood pressure and you're obese and you treat your obesity, what happens to your blood pressure? It goes down. If you have sleep apnea, and there's an ongoing study in this right now as we speak, and you can't tolerate CPAP machines and you lose weight, what do you think happens to severe your sleep apnea? It goes down. So now there's an arm race between the two companies to show as many indications as they can for their drug. So Novodiscus published data for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, showing that obese people with heart failure, if they go on this medication, they lose weight, they feel better. Eli Lilly is about to publish their data for sleep apnea. It's going to be pretty obvious. You're obese, you lose weight, sleep apnea gets better. The biggest sneak peek of their most anticipated trial, the SELECT trial, came out August 8th. Novodiscus released that they met their endpoint. And this is fascinating. In non-diabetics who are overweight, which is a BMI of 27, which a lot of Americans who have any coronary disease there's a reduction in heart attack risk with Wigovi, 
which is their version of semaglutide for non-diabetic. So now we have a justification to say, you have any coronary disease or any atherosclerotic disease anywhere, and your weight is not optimized, regardless of your diabetes or blood sugar control, these medications aren't just there for cosmetic purposes. You could justify using them to reduce your risk of having a major atherosclerotic event. And it's kind of opening Pandora's box. But to get back to your question about why not use it, why shouldn't everybody use it? There are side effects. Jason knows them. There are side effects. There's concerns. There's concerns for coverage, cost, long-term use. But more and more patient subpopulations we're identifying that may benefit from these. Wait, you said we're opening Pandora's box, meaning it's a bad thing. Do you really feel that way, that we're opening Pandora's box? My thought is, did you guys watch the Living to 100 documentary on Netflix? It's pretty new. Mm -mm. You're busier than me, Jason. You're actually out there doing life-saving surgery, man. It's a really interesting documentary. It looks at these blue zones in like Japan, Italy, Greece, where these guys are living to 100. Mm -hmm. And they don't have access to a surgeon like Jason Cohen or a cardiologist like myself or Wigovi or Zempic or statins and they're outliving us. And they try to find out why, why are they living so long so healthily? And what they see is these guys walk more. They walk up hills, 90 year olds, 95 year olds. They're exerting themselves the whole life. Their day-to-day -day life is different. They're more active. What I'm worried about, Jason, with these medications being almost a panacea is, is it just going to mean more of us sitting in our chairs 16 hours a day, walking 3,000 steps a day at max, and just injecting ourselves once a week, getting some relative risk reduction and having an event, but living such a more unhealthy lifestyle otherwise with our diet, with a lack of exercise, that our net benefit is not going to be significant. That's such a good way to put it. But that's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing. You know, some people say, you know, I, I don't feel like exercise or I can't exercise because I'm overweight or I can't. So, uh, you know, if they start losing weight and feeling better, it may make their depression better and may be like, oh, let me get outside and go walk and live a little. Plus, 100%. I hope that's hard. how it goes. Yeah, I hope that majority of the patients that use it, it ends up inspiring them to move more. But and this is the fascinating thing about sad. it. How long would you guys guess you have to be on it for you to keep the weight off? I have no clue. Months? A year? That's a trick question, so, eh, Dr. Nayeri? <laughs> two times in the history of Nova Discus, their stock went up by over 15% in one day. The second time was recently when they published the select data showing in non-diabetics you're reducing heart attacks. But the first time, and the biggest rise ever in the stock history, was when they published a study called Step 4. Step four is fascinating. You put people on this medication for 20 weeks, five months, their weight goes down. At five months, you randomize them to either keep on the medication and the weight keeps going down or go on a sugar pill. Mm -hmm. So five months in, they've lost about 10% of their weight. You put them on a sugar pill. They come back. Not all the way, but most of the way. So maybe so that's where you can argue chicken and egg. Had they in that time period completely changed their lifestyle habits, maybe those are the people who didn't come back. But the people who came back were the guys who got switched to placebo. So the issue is, and I tell this to all my patients, when you do go off of it, whenever that point is, unless you've completely changed your lifestyle, even then you're gonna gain a lot of the weight back, 
which brings us to another issue. It's an expensive medication for somebody to take for the rest of their life, especially if they're starting in their 20s and 30s, Mm. And if they're using it not as a supplement or as a bridge to a healthier lifestyle, but as a substitute. This reminds me a little bit of women's or anyone starting to use filler or something that is fleeting because it's not permanently changing your face. It requires upkeep and it's expensive, probably around the same or more. I don't know. But it seems that once someone sees those results, they're very committal to, I will find a way to pay for this. A hundred percent. That's ex- that's such a good example. Such a good example. But what about um, if you measure the cost of the drug versus someone having surgery to lose weight, how much that costs, big picture costs, and then the risks mm-hmm. associated with surgery. I, has, are we doing studies with that surgery, you know, long-term studies? I think it's never going to be a head-to-head study. I think you're going to get better epidemiologic studies at cost-cutting Right now, the drugs are pretty pricey. So right now, the sticker price is roughly 1000 a month for all of them, so 12000 a year. You know this better than me. How much would a RNY, like a gastric sleeve or a RNY gastric bypass cost on well, average? We can ask Google. Well, the question Google. is, it's not just the cost to the patient. It's the insurance company cost. It's the yeah. hospital. Uh, so, and and then there's complications potentially related to general anesthesia and all of that. Yeah. And people lose weight after bariatric, bariatric surgery, but there are plenty of people in the future who go back to being overweight as well. Oh Especially yeah, the, the range the range is so wide. Uh, the yeah. average bariatric surgery costs seven thousand four hundred to thirty three thousand before insurance. Before insurance. And like Jason so the, says, again, if there's a complication, they have to go get B12 injections possibly thereafter, the medical follow-up. So I think in the short term, you can suggest these are cheaper. And again, as the price comes down, so another thing you're going to see is with more players entering the field, other companies want a piece of this seemingly infinite pie. With more players entering and more competition and the price going down, it may be more economic for people to be on this versus bariatric surgery. Do you think, Justin, do you think we're about to lose volume in that space in a significant way? In the in the bariatric surgery, the weight loss surgery yeah. space? I hope so, as a surgeon, uh, believe it or not. Do uh, you think it's safer? Well, that that's the that's the next next question for Arash is is have you seen have you seen any either data or anecdotes or reports of of bad stuff from this medicine? Oh, so that's a, such a good topic. We got cursed with statins in cardiology. The first statins that came out, and statins, have, I think, after smoking cessation, have made the biggest impact in increasing lifespan in the U.S. If you look at why we live longer now than we did in like the 80s, we smoke less and we use statins. But with statins, what happened is... Statins, the cholesterol-reducing drugs. Cholesterol-reducing. Exactly. So the the issue with them was they could cause muscle aches, the old generation especially. Doctors dismissed those symptoms. Then the internet came out, and every person who has any aches or pains, they attributed to this medication. They wrote about it online. They created this whole 
nocebo effect where people are convinced the statin causing the side effect, even though when you blind them and give them a placebo, 90% of them still say they have the same side effect, which is amazing. To a degree, because so many people are on this medication, we're going to see similar side effects possibly get attributed to it, which may or may not be real. So to start off with that, there are real side effects from these medications. Nausea, 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 nausea. It's going to change your hunger cues. It's going to change the way your stomach empties. So you have to change the way you eat. And even then, some people can't handle the nausea. Even at lower doses, they can't handle the nausea. So in all the studies, 20, 25% of people have pretty significant GI upsets. More serious side effects we haven't identified in a major way, but there are already musings about it. So there was a New York Times article, if you guys remember, a few months ago, if you read it, about Ozempic face, where it was a bunch of really skinny people who took Ozempic. Obviously, they're losing fat, so their face shrinks, and they're complaining that Ozempic deformed their body. Mm. There was a study, a basic science study in mice, showing that mice with getting crazy high dose of Ozempic can get a certain form of thyroid cancer, medullary thyroid cancer. And it's created this whole misinformation out there, even amongst doctors, that I can't give this to somebody with thyroid cancer risk. Well, the cell in the thyroid, the C cell, that expresses the GLP-1 receptor in rats is only found in 7% of mice cells and less than 1% of human cells. And there is never, in over 100,000 people being studied in these trials, ever been shown to be a link between this medication and thyroid cancer. But if you have millions of Americans taking a drug, and just by chance, if you will get thyroid cancer, that's going to get a lot of popularity. A lot of guys are going to come out on a Dr. Oz show or something else and say, this medication was linked to thyroid cancer rats. My doctor never told me about it. I went on it three years later, I got thyroid cancer. So we're going to have to deal with that. Same thing for pancreatic cancer. Anytime, and the same, you, know, you guys remember, the same thing happened with COVID vaccines. A lot of people attributed a lot of the complications to it. Anytime you introduce millions of Americans or millions of people in general to a new drug, complications randomly from other things can happen, and it's hard for the public to tease out a coincidence or not. That makes sense. So as far as you know, you personally haven't seen any major red label stuff other than the known, quote, medullary thyroid cancer thing? No. People who want to be skeptics about it, and I think it's fair to be a skeptic, say it's only been studied now for a little over a decade. And if there's a mechanism for it to possibly lead to cancer that we haven't identified, we won't know possibly for longer. And are we exposing a lot of people to something that could have long-term deleterious effects? To which I reply, it's plausible. And because of that, I think it should only be used in people who really stand to get significant benefit from it, not just somebody who doesn't like the fact to have five pounds extra, right? Not like a 20-year-old, not a 25-year-old. Mm-hmm. That's just maybe a few pounds overweight. Speaking of millions of Americans being interested in this, I, I do want to know if you've seen a change in the demographic coming into your office asking for any of these drugs. Just based on what I've seen and read too, it seems that people are taking it 
who I, you wouldn't think would take it basically, or you might not think has a medical need, not that I'm a doctor and anybody can decide that, but it seems to be a lot more widespread than you'd think. I, uh, I got a couple of bad health grades reviews for uh, people coming in, asking for them, me saying no, mm. and them thinking I'm neglecting to give them care. So it's mm. unfortunately for a while, it's been a lot of people looking at it just for purely cosmetic purposes, mm-hmm. especially where we practice. We're allowed to say we, we practice in Beverly Hills. So yes. God bless us. We're at the epicenter of that patient population. And they're going to put a lot of money in the next six months, both companies, into advertising, advertising, advertising cardiovascular benefits in the disease group. So maybe that'll shift more to just people with coronary disease or risk factors for it. But the past few years, there's been a lot of young people, a lot of young people who are trying to look a little bit better for the gym. Yeah, that feels unfair to you. And then they're complaining later as if they've been gypped. And the best part is, exactly. And the best part is, Insurance typically doesn't cover it if you're not a diabetic still. Insurance mm-hmm. companies really lag their coverage for the data as long as they can so they can save money. So most young people who I believe are getting it, somewhere, somehow, someone's fabricating a history of diabetes they don't have. Mm-hmm. Because I doubt all these, your friends and my friends and these people who are taking it are spending $1,000 a month for it. Yeah, that's a good point. And I know you also teased at uh, some potential negatives and then you mentioned that Dr. Cohn had come and chatted to you. Dr. Cohn, are you open to talking about that? Yes, by all means. We, we've talked about it, you know, in our posts on social media a little bit. I, hi, my name is Jason. I'm an Ozempic <laughs> user. You know, I've been on this weird health kick for since you guys went off to college. So wh- when were you a freshman in college? this question again i've gotten it wrong before believe it or not i was a freshman in college in 2014 okay so almost 10 so 10 years ago i kind of started this health finally saying i got to get back on track so it really just started with walking and then i changed the way i eat to being more plant based and you know built up to the gym and all that and i lost a decent amount of weight because before that i'd put on a ton of weight but i'd lost a decent amount of weight and got into shape but i was still having trouble kind of getting to where i really wanted my weight and then all of a sudden i see one of my partners all of a sudden just slim down like crazy and i'm like hey what'd you do and he's like oh i went to this one of his cardiologist friends gave him the medicine i'm like i'm going and and actually it's funny i was with bernice at the time seeing him my wife arash and um, the master injector. And she was like, yeah, mate, she, she was on board. So I'm like, okay, I, if the wife is on board, I'm gonna do it. And the the rep, you know, came by, talked to us, gave us some samples and I was hooked. And the funny thing is, is the first couple of weeks, I, I didn't, I just felt weird and didn't notice anything. But then I had lost weight, but that final like 20 pounds that I really felt like I needed to lose, it really came off so much easier and I was feeling so much better, except for the fact that I started having this weird palpitations. Like I was getting chest palpitations and I was starting to kind of feel a little dizzy sometimes. So I'm thinking I'm having a heart attack or something weird is going on. So sure (laughs) enough, I reached out to uh, Dr. Nayeri. You know what's funny though? I went in there and your medical assistant is looking at my medical record and you guys had weighed me and she's like this wait a minute this isn't you 
because my weight, I guess, from my last yep. time was there was so much, like 50 pounds different or something. And I'm like, no, no, that's me. She was in disbelief that it was me because, you know, 10 years ago, I weighed 50 pounds more than I do now. But once you told me I was fine, I was fine. So did your 100%. symptoms go away? So Dr. Knight, so Arash put me on a heart monitor, actually. Mm-hmm. What's a heart monitor? Is that like a device? What is it? You just wear it on your skin. It's like an EKG that you walk with. It's a tiny, mm -hmm. continuous EKG. Make sure you're not having extra heartbeats that are too dangerous. You know, a few things happen after that. A, I kind of had got down to my weight, so I kind of slowly tapered myself off of the Ozempic. But B, him just telling me I was fine, and because I'm a nutty hypochondriac guy, mentally, once he said I was fine, now I now I felt fine again. So until my next thing, you know, which you'll be getting until your next thing. in the middle of the last one night. That's you know? so which is, relatable. <laughs> which is which is super interesting. Imagine, God forbid, you know, you had something that happened that was unrelated, right? In your mind for the rest of your life, you would have linked the two, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so, that's a good point. Um, yeah, that's where that association does come in. Again, to be clear, Jason, I think you are, in my mind, a gray zone for taking it because you were truly, you're leading a very tough lifestyle. I mean, how many hours a day are you operating on your feet, but not moving and stress and the focus and the sleep disturbance, right? And it's just, it's so conducive to metabolic syndrome. You know, when I say I think it's going to lead to the bad direction, it's not you because for you it was never a replacement of you eating better. You change your diet. It's not a replacement for you working out. You're working out, right? I see you running around. My concern is for the other people who will use it only as a crutch and not as an adjunct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the other thing too for me, just to defend myself a little bit, is my A1C was just at the upper limit of normal when I first, yeah. you know, that was kind of, I was just under six. So I would kind of, why don't you explain what A1C is? There's a couple of ways you can measure blood sugar control and diabetes. One way, just don't eat for, you know, eight hours and check your blood sugar. It's an old archaic system. A1C just looks at your red blood cells. So uh, what percent of your red blood cells on their surface have a fair amount of sugar? So the more sugar you have, in your system, the more your red blood cells get covered with sugar. So it's a way we can measure your body's average exposure to glucose in your bloodstream, which is now how we most commonly define diabetes or prediabetes. That makes so. sense. And with a level of just under six, I was almost considered prediabetic, right? You were, you were prediabetic. Yeah, so I kind of felt like I had enough of a reason to go on it for that as well. That makes sense. And was now that you have that peace of mind, that you're okay, you feel better yeah. and you feel okay with taking it. I can so understand. It's really a mental game sometimes with health, with yeah. physical health even. And my, my dad's dad was diabetic. So I, I know I'm a pre-diabetic and I know I, but I have to confess I've gone on and off. I've gone on and off it now a couple of times uh, and then kind of put myself on a low dose for a little bit. And now I'm back off it again. I think there might be some way to kind of, and correct, I don't know if anybody knows this, to kind of be on a low dose to maybe be okay. What do you think? I, I, I think that's part of the next frontier. This is why I'm telling you it's becoming kind of scary because they're trying for everything. They're now showing efficacy in type 1 diabetic by saying maybe the pancreas can release some insulin mm -hmm. and it's not fully dead. And as we all get older, our pancreas gets a little lazier each year. 
So every year, all our body is releasing a little bit less insulin. So our blood sugars tend to go up. So as you get older, Jason, even if you're healthy, even if you're doing everything right, your A1C does have the tendency to creep up. And maybe this can be that extra whoop on your pancreas to release a little bit more, a little bit more of the insulin it has to keep the blood sugar steady. It's, an, it's going to be an exciting frontier. Right. People are expecting it to be a $100 billion industry Wow! by and the end of the decade, which is pretty crazy. It's wild. But you don't necessarily have to be on the weight loss dose. You could just be on the good glucose dose, the maintenance dose kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yep. And the other thing that's interesting about it is uh, I don't think anyone's – I don't want to say that. Most people haven't heard about it. They're looking at a formulation you inject every three months instead of every week. Which company? Both? Both. The issue with that is if you have side effects from it, there's no way of getting rid of it, right? So you inject yeah. yourself with that. There's no antidote. There's nothing. You have to buckle down for, for three months. Yeah, buckle down for three months and it's then crazy. have some patience. It'll combat the needle fear a little bit, which I think a lot of people still have. You know, interestingly, I think people have the right now, I know people saying, I need the shot, I need the shot. And I'm like, you know, there is a pill form that's accessible. People now have the pill fear. They don't want to have yeah. to take a pill every day. And the pill doesn't work as well. That's another reason it doesn't get used. The pill, when we studied it for cardiovascular risk reduction, didn't have the same benefit. And I think a big reason is people just either not taking the pills as well or just not absorbed as well, especially when you're having so much nausea. So I, it's going to remain an injectable, I think. Do these studies that are sort of racing against each other and coming out any minute now, are they affecting more of what a doctor is recommending for their patients or are you seeing patients coming in asking for a specific? I think the weight loss stuff was really targeted towards patients or at least patients took it up more. The cardiovascular benefit data is I think more towards doctors, but they're going to advertise it. So they're going to have this huge advertising campaign when the, the select study gets published that I think they budgeted half a billion dollars for over three years. And their logo is think beyond the pounds, think beyond the pounds, think beyond the pounds. And they're really going to push that. That's they're really going to push that. Smart angle. It's putting them in such a very sweet light that even if that's what you're looking for, you can make it about everything other than that. But of course, it's a, a nice side effect if you are looking your best too. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's so interesting. I've never in my short career so far, and I don't think in Jason's, we've ever seen a drug like this. Because the other like big Viagra. highly advertised drugs, Vi you're right, Viagra. Did it have a Viagra. similar boom like this all at once? Is that why? Is that what you mean? A metaphorical boom? Are you, are you <laughs> a uh, baby boom? Yeah, um, no, I mean just had a like a lot of bada booms. There was like a million people asking for a drug at the same time and making so much money on it. Our senior partner has a wall of pens that he collected from pharma companies. Uh, and he has, I think, 60 Viagra pens there. Like the pharma reps come in every single day, pushing yeah, it. So that was before that was before my MD, the Viagra yeah. boom. That you know what interesting thing I'm starting to see, and I don't know if you are, and I think anecdotally more it's popping up, is that people on these medicines are also claiming less neuroses, neurotic, anxiety, 
behaviors or even addictive behaviors. I don't know if you've started to see that. Some, some I saw read an article where a drink someone who normally would drink a decent amount is like, yeah, no, I don't even feel like having wine at all tonight. And and I, I know someone who is worried about going on it because of an addictive personality is saying that person feels just much more calm. And mm. I'm yeah. I think for alcohol, it makes sense. They're looking at that too in one of their seminal trials because they want to enter that space. That space is incredibly profitable, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody with ad addiction disorder needs to be on this forever and it reduces craving just because you're nauseous. Who wants to go mm -hmm. have a good time with tequila when they're nauseous? The OCD stuff, I don't get, I don't know how that would work. I guess it's a placebo effect or I, I don't know. That's like if interesting. If I like bite my nails, if I yeah. think, am I going to stop biting my nails? Yeah, the alcohol thing does make sense. I saw someone mention smoking or vaping too, that she, I don't know, it was something on the news. It wasn't like a real study, but she said that she was smoking less or feeling the urge to smoke less. Alcohol, and I'm, I have no clue if this is true, but I would think maybe something that you ingest because your blood sugar is balanced or you're nauseous, that you wouldn't want to do that. But nail biting or any sort of anxiety, I don't get that. And I don't either, but but there's even myself, you know, I'm someone if I have a cut or a bruise and it scabs over, I'm ridiculous. I like to pick my scabs. I'm a scab picker. But when I noticed when I was on the higher dose, just in hindsight, looking back now, when I was on the higher dose of Ozempic, you know, the I wasn't doing it. And I and I really don't know why. And and I only realized that after I kind of came off the dose. We should we should do a deep dive on this because there is hypothalamic expression right? Oh, and there is yeah. frontal lobe expression. So if it's a treatment for OCD, I'm going to give you full credit for it because I have never heard of that one before. Well, can we you should, break down what you just said you for anyone who doesn't know what hypothalamic yeah. expression? At the beginning, so, I know you mentioned yeah, hypothalamus. So, so, so th these drugs are mimicking your own increases, right? How they react in the body. So those receptors that respond to them are in the pancreas. They're in the stomach. They're also in the brain. So, and again, the parts of the brain that regulate appetite and decision-making are the hypothalamus and the frontal lobe respectively. So you would think somehow maybe their behavior there is changing some addictive OCD behaviors. Mm. If that's true, I learn something new every day. Maybe we just found your next uh, study, you guys. We heard it here first. There you go. Yeah, I actually <laughs> talked to the head of psychiatry uh, about it to see what, what he had found. And and he also anecdotally is starting to tell me a little bit of stories like that. And I said, should we do a study? I don't know. Maybe you and I will do a study. I don't I don't know. How Let's to do, do a study. Yeah. Let's do a study. We can. I'm sure we can get it funded. Then you're going to get all these benefit. people. You're going to get a bunch of people with acne or any sort of picking issue taking it as well everybody's gonna have a reason to take it at this point because that's very common yeah 100 percent. also when you said your short career can you give us a bit of context can we get some background on you and how long is a short career so i went to berkeley as an undergrad i go bears uh, went in 2000 and go bears i uh ali went to berkeley too yeah and so did my daughter. That's how they met. Yes. Yeah. That's why we threw in a go bears. I know, but I, oh, does that, if you say go bears, does it automatically mean you went to Berkeley? I think so. Okay. I think so. So that's yeah. why I didn't say go bears because I didn't go to Berkeley. That's right. 
Okay, got it. But as a parent of someone who went to Berkeley, would it be appropriate? You can say it. Absolutely. Yeah, you you, you paid you paid for Go Bears. Okay. I'm sure. Right. <laughs> That's awesome. So then I uh, did my grad school in chemistry there. I went to Vanderbilt for med school. And then I did a interesting combined residency fellowship at UCLA where I did less medicine and more cardiology. I did some research and I then I joined uh, Cedar sinai uh, last July 1st, officially. I used to come down the weekends for hospital work and hospital coverage, but I joined an outpatient practice on Jason's floor last July, and that's where I got to meet him. It was one of the most interesting meets of my life. We got to go into one of his, like the conference room, and you had your social media guy. Mariano. You had, yeah, super well-dressed. You had your med students. It was crazy. It was one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. And it was the first time we actually talked about this drug that day. I'd ever met a surgeon who knew about this. Mm. And to this day, you're one of the only non-cardiologists, endocrinologists who know as much as you do about this. It's pretty remarkable, man. Hmm. Thanks. I think he's pretty curious. I found since meeting Jason. You like to explore things, so that makes sense. Thank you. Thank you, both both of you guys. Um, actually, the rep, I think, was there that day, too, right? The, the... She was. Yeah. yeah. The, the semaglutide rep was there, too. She's actually, she's also unique because she actually knows her stuff. Sometimes yeah. you get these reps. Did you guys watch the Netflix documentary on Purdue? Mm -mm. It was really well done. Sometimes these reps who come in know nothing about their drug. They're just like a pretty face or a handsome face, and they're just there to schmooze. She really knows the data. Yeah, I can imagine that. Well, I don't know what kind of degree you would need to sell any of these drugs, but it would be intimidating to go to a group of doctors and sell a drug that they may know more about than you do. They're not intimidated. They say that's amazing. Absolute confidence, even they if have it's one hundred percent wrong. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to. That kind of sales is really intense. Even in my short sales career, I, I that would be really intimidating. So that's, they have to be very confident. A hundred percent. How often are you prescribing it now? A lot. Yeah. I, I again, I, I, the, my main reason to do it is I'm very aggressive. So I, I tell our patients, and this part I think is true. I think where we live, where our, with our patient population who smoke less, who have more socioeconomic means, if our patients die of a heart attack or stroke, it's almost a personal failure. It's typically a hip fracture, dementia, a cancer you couldn't prevent. So we're very aggressive about cardiovascular risk reduction. So across the board for my diabetics with coronary disease or history of cerebrovascular disease, and now with my overweight patients with the disease, which is a lot of my patients, I at least try it once. Do you have a preference one or the other, or you kind of just coin toss it? So, you know, because so far semaglutide is the only one that has the cardiovascular data, I still prescribe that for that reason. If it's just pure weight loss, I use terzepatide because it's stronger. When terzepatide gets their cardiovascular data published, if it's comparable better, I think I'll switch to that more because of more profound weight loss. But it's not one-to-one. -one. And again, that's going to be an interesting thing because terzepatide makes you lose more weight. So you may think it's going to reduce your risk of cardiovascular morbidity mortality by more than semaglutide, but due to a really interesting quirk, it doesn't reduce your inflammation as much as semaglutide does. 
Hmm. So there's a real big possibility, despite the fact semaglutide makes you lose 15%, compared to terzepatide is 20%, the heart attack and stroke risk reduction with semaglutide may be more. Hmm. How can you track inflammation? A blood test. So there's there's these blood tests that you do, uh, C-reactive protein, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, that are a marker of your body's inflammation level. Hmm. So you do a blood test before you start the medication, you do one after and you have a sense of what happened. And we all know, so metabolic syndrome, which is the compilation of high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, obesity, inflammation, they tend to go hand in hand and obesity tends to be a really big driver. So you would think the more you reduce the weight, the more you get your inflammation down. Mm -hmm. But for a very complicated reason, semaglutide, despite causing less weight loss than terzepatide, reduces your inflammation more. Interesting. Which is interesting. Yeah. Dr. Cohen, any other questions for him? Because I'm ready to ask you what you're watching this week. Yeah, I know. We we initially were going to have this whole other conversation, which I think is going to have to be on the part two, because I think we we did a really deep dive on this. And we're going to have to do a part two, uh, uh, Arash, I think. Let's do it. Yeah, definitely. Anytime, man. I would love that. Yeah. I think I had a lot more questions for you than I knew I was going to have. I was going in kind of blind here, and I... I learned a lot. Were you guys going to talk about, you didn't want to talk about Bronny James? That was, that was one of the things we wanted to talk about. We can talk about Bronny James real quick. We Tell us about, about Bronny James. Since you, brought, since you brought it up, we I was being quiet a little bit, so, but yeah, let's so talk. No about one it. knows. No, they never, so they, they published a formal statement saying he had a congenital defect in his heart, which means he was born with it mm. and which will we'll treat and will move on. So, the question, the, the red topic question is, what was the defect, right? Defect makes you think something is missing, which makes you think maybe there was a hole in his heart or there was a valvular issue, which I doubt. I think it was probably a misinformation. Most likely, and again, this is just pure conjecture. I don't know. Most likely to look at the data, he either has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy which means the muscle in his heart is really thick. And when he exercises very vigorously, he's at risk of um, not pumping enough blood flow to his brain mm -hmm. or even to his own heart. And he can get a dangerous arrhythmia or he could have been born with what we call an anomalous coronary artery, which is the vessels that supply the blood flow of your heart typically come out a certain pattern to have a certain anatomy, gross anatomy, right? Sometimes the anatomy we're born with just due to the way we develop is contorted. And one of these vessels may come off the wrong place. And during peak exercise, it may get squished between your aorta and your pulmonary artery and lead to dangerous arrhythmias. So the Houston study in, in the medical center showed 55% of athletes that had an event like Brownie, and he was thankfully lucky enough to come back, had either the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or the anomalous coronary artery. So if I'm a betting man, I say it's one of those two. For anyone who doesn't know, Bronny James is LeBron James's son who collapsed while at basketball practice. So he was absolutely intensely works out frequently, I'm sure. And I have two questions. Why would it be the, the first one? Why would he have the, the thickened heart? Is that just some random people get that? that? That's part one of the question. And then what? why that day did it happen as opposed to another day or da-da-da? So the, the thick heart, the HCM, is genetic 
but it's not Mendelian. It doesn't mean if your dad has it, you will get it. It doesn't mean if your dad or mom doesn't have it, you won't get it, but there's genetic risk factors. It's just, why do some people get eczema? Why do some people you know, have other issues? Why it happens on a certain day, a lot of it is just luck and chance. But the thought is when you're exercising vigorously and your heart's just going gangbusters, it increases the demand on the heart. It reduces the blood flow to the innermost layer of the heart. And you get unlucky, you get an extra heartbeat that comes just from electrical wiring. It can lead to a you know ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation episode. So we don't know exactly why it happens when it happens. A lot of it is chance, but vigorous exercise, very vigorous exercise has historically been linked to it. So, so does, does that mean if he had that, that he's now a ticking time bomb and, and can't go join the NBA? Be careful. I don't think there's ever been an NBA player with HCM to my knowledge, right? It's I, I've never seen one. I've never, I've never dis- disclosed it. And but you would think again, there's a lot of very there's lots of shades of gray, right? There's it's not just black and white. There's a lot of these guys that if they have it and they go on the right medication, now we know that they can go exercise and they can work out. And as long as they're hydrated, they're actually relatively safe. The other one, if you had the anomalous coronary artery, he would need to get open heart surgery to repair it. But then after that, he wouldn't have a reason why he couldn't play. So I'm interested to see because I heard he was actually a decent prospect. Not LeBron level, but, you know, still. He's still young. Well, thank you for letting... Since we since we brought it up, I'm I'm gonna I have to be a little controversial. Not a little. This is a lot controversial. And and just just to say it, there are a lot of people out there who are like, oh, this is from COVID or from the vaccine or da da da. And I I just by all means just say I don't want to talk about it or shoot me down or whatever. But but is that possible? What what are your thoughts? Possible, I would say just mathematically less likely and that's a whole different discussion by the way we could have on a different day that's COVID part two. and the heart COVID and the heart is really interesting because COVID came out at a time where our cardiac MRIs became really sensitive so and that's one of the parts of future of cardiology we have really good MRIs that look at the heart now in a way they couldn't do 10 years ago and we've identified so many cases of people getting myocarditis which is inflammation of the heart muscle that can lead to scarring and which can lead to arrhythmia from COVID. So was it possible? Maybe somebody got COVID and got some scarring and that led to arrhythmia? Absolutely. Do I think it's the most likely thing in him? Probably not, but, but that's there are another people, Pandora's box. Yeah, there are people who think that him collapsing could be connected to either COVID or a COVID vaccine. So glad that Bronnie is okay and... Hope to see him thriving very soon in the next LeBron. Okay, how we usually end is we want to hear on Gross Anatomy what you're consuming, reading, watching, listening to. We want to know your media consumption this week. I love it. I watch a lot of trash TV. So I'm looking forward to um, Love is Blind on Netflix. Mm-hmm. which is just amazing because it's like the ultimate proof that love isn't blind. It's really, really fun to see that. I recently watched, I told you guys about living to 100, which I think is really fascinating. Really fascinating. Oh yeah. Is that called the blue zones or it's called living to 100? Cause someone... living to 100. 
Oh, okay. But it's about the blue zones, right? Yeah. Since I watched it, Jason, I'm just going upstairs all day. I haven't touched the elevator once since watching it. I hate my, I'm out of breath all day, but it works, man. And um, I think the next season of Severance, I'm making sure you guys have watched Severance on Apple TV. I'm looking forward to that one. It's one of the best, unique mind freaks you'll ever see. Mm. My TikTok is full of the Blue Zone documentary. So I also didn't know it was called Living to 100 because everyone's just been referring to it as the Blue Zone documentary and posting TikToks, whoever lives there is saying, you know, all the benefits and all the wonderful things they're doing in those countries. So it's definitely spreading like wildfire. I'm going to watch that next. I started Killing Eve this week and I'm listening to uh, Prince Harry's book, Spare. So that's mine. What about you, Jason? I had, did I tell you that Hannah, my middle daughter, who actually did tell me all about Severance, but I, I don't know if I, I, still, I don't know if I'm going to watch it. She had us watch the second season of Fleabag. Did you see Fleabag? I started it. I couldn't, I, I want to finish it, but I never do. Well, that's how we felt about the first season. But then she's like, just watch the second season only. And the second season was pretty fun. And so that was interesting. But then Hannah also, she's right now, I guess my middle daughter is kind of my social media connection, showed me this trailer to a movie called Past Lives. Have you heard of this movie, Past Lives? I think so. And it looks beautiful. So it's on my to-do list to watch Past Lives. It's about this couple who are, I think, happily married, but some boy from the girl's life all of a sudden reappears from her past life. And it just looks like the most beautiful, romantic, maybe sad-ish movie. So I'm looking forward to watching Past Lives. You'll have to report back on that one. And I just thought of one we all have to watch, which is the American Horror Story episode with Kim Kardashian comes out tonight. Oh. Yep. (laughs) That's tonight. Uh, on the next episode, I want to dedicate five minutes to Harry and Megan and okay. the craziest couple. Uh, I have two. a lot of comments about those two. Those guys Ooh. are. So we'll add something. that to part two. We'll talk about uh, cardiac, COVID, <laughs> and the crazy couple. Thank you so couple. much for talking all of the trends with us. I know we had so many questions for you. Arash, this was I- amazing. Thank you it's so awesome. much for joining us at Gross Anatomy, and we'll definitely have you for a part two. And I, what's amazing is you're just down the hall for my next heart attack. I just run down the hall. Oh, God. You're not going to get a heart attack. You're going to be 110 years old having, like, met students who are your great-grandchildren's high school buddies. Amen. Amen. Kicking butt. Amen, guys. Cheers to that. Have, have a, a great night, night, you guys. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy. As a reminder, gross anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 